Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Learn more at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Lauren McCarthy. Lauren is the maintainer of P5.js, a JavaScript library for the processing language. She also teaches at UCLA Design Media Arts. Our focus with Lauren was on contributions and culture. We talked about what she thought of open source before she became a part of it, and what it took for her to become a maintainer. We also talked about how P5.js gets new contributors, how they keep them around, and why design isn't better represented in open source. So before we get into P5.js, um, you have a pretty interesting background in terms of how you got into open source in the first place. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess I I have some background in computer science and or I did just like uh, undergrad and then I but I really moved more into an art space after that. Um, but I was doing art like using software, um, and so I used a lot of open source tools. Um, some of them. Or uh, tools called like open frameworks or processing, and it was like after grad school that I started thinking about like, oh, like who makes these tools? And I wonder if I could, you know, help or give back in some way because I was working at like a design studio at the time. So I thought like I could probably get some time to help with these. Um, and it, I so I didn't really know where to start, um, but I just kind of joined some mailing lists and thought like I could kind of figure it out. Um, <laughs> and uh, the thing that I found was that like, it was really hard to know where to, to begin. Um, and that I got the sense that, you know, I was kind of like, Oh, I'm here. I want to help. Um, and there wasn't like a lot of, like no one really reached out and I felt like, Oh, okay. I'm going to have to kind of like elbow my way in, in here. And that it just didn't work for a while until, um, Actually, Casey Reese, who makes the processing project, along with Ben Fry and Dan Schiffman, I had a conversation with him and I was kind of mentioning this and he invited me, he like sort of immediately reached out and said like, oh, do you want to work on processing? Um, and kind of gave me a really structured in to do that. And so, yeah, it kind of went from there. I had no idea what I was doing at first, but I think that was one of the things that was really special about my entry to it was that like in a lot of projects you do have to really know what you're doing and kind of like prove yourself right off the bat and they really gave me space to just be totally confused and totally lost for a little while and and you know kind of find my way into the project. So did uh, you create P5Js or was it a collaboration with other people? How did that all work? Yeah so um, I guess when they asked me to work on processing the idea well, I said, I, I've just been starting to learn JavaScript. Uh, I think it's really cool. <laughs> so is that <laughs> is there some <laughs> something I could do with that? And they said, um, so processing, maybe to back up a, a minute, is um, 
like a, a platform for making graphics or interactive experiences or projects. And it's designed to be really kind of friendly for beginners or for artists or for like non-technical people. And it's um, based on Java. So it kind of came out of this frustration that like with Java, you would have to write all this code and like know what you're doing pretty well just to get like a circle to appear on the screen. And so with processing, the idea was that like just one line of code should get you a circle on the screen and one more line, you should be able to change the color. And so the task they gave me or the question was, you know, Java, when they began the project in 2001, was like the de facto language to be working in. And since then, you know, this was like 2013, there was some energy around uh, the web <laughs> or JavaScript specifically. Um, and so they were asking, what would processing look like today um, or if it were made for the web? And so out of that came P5.js. And in the beginning, it was um, me and I was working with a collaborator, Evelyn Eastman, um, who also had some experience with another kind of learning platform called Scratch. Um, she had Boku. I... Yeah, she was. Okay. Um, and then now she's working with, uh, uh, what's, it, what's it called? HARC, Human Advancement Research Center. It's the uh, Alan, uh, what's his name? K Research Group. Um, cool. But yeah, so we were working together on that for a little while. And then she ended up kind of moving away from the project right before uh, we did like a public release. Um, but the first year, maybe when you're, um, it was the two of us working together on that. I, I recall that there was, um, there was sort of like a proof of concept processing in JavaScript that the John Resig who created jQuery did at one right. point, but it didn't really have like, how do I put this? It, it didn't have all the things that make this useful. <laughs> 5JS has like a lot of things that like really help you along. And, and uh, it was more of just a proof of concept for the language. Um, so w was there was there ever any kind of problem with, you know, creating a new version of it or anybody saying like, can't we build on top of this? Or was it just people going, oh, yeah, this is this is actually something that I can use? <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit. Um... So when John made that, he kind of, I think, did it very, like, he was able to do it actually pretty quickly and just kind of ported processing to JavaScript. Um, and it was less like a project that he wanted to maintain and more kind of like you said, like proof of concept and put it out there. And then since then, like other people have kind of taken that and uh, maintained it to some extent, but it just didn't quite have the parity with where processing was or the... Uh, maintenance support to kind of make it really robust. So we talked a little bit with some of the people involved with that project. Um, and then I think ultimately decided to just see what a new, like to, to try and remove any existing, you know, requirements or infrastructure and just start from scratch. Um, and one reason was that like, we were really thinking of this not as a port, uh, to JavaScript, but like a reinterpretation for the web. Um, and so a lot of the syntax stayed the same, but uh, I felt free to change it at places that it needed to change um, or to add to it or to remove things that didn't make sense um, and to have that be really clear in our minds that like, you know, one thing we we're dealing with was the it was kind of an interesting audience because we had, you know, people that were longtime processing users that wanted to move to the web or move to JavaScript. And then we also had people that were like native web users that might be interested in this project. And so we were trying to make something that would kind of fit meet in the middle 
Um, cause a lot of the syntax with like, a, you know, a Java based language is feels strange perhaps for, uh, JavaScript, right? Like it's not a perfect one-to-one. Um, and so we're trying to find something that didn't alienate, uh, or supported that audience that was coming from Java and from processing, but also made something that trying to make something that really felt like native and, um, like a fit on the web and wasn't like this kind of out of place thing. Um, and so, uh, I think there were some tensions around like, why not just put this energy into the, the other project was called processing JS. Why not just put all this energy into processing JS? And yeah, I think it was really just being able to kind of start from scratch. And I think also where I was at the time when I started the project, like I just didn't really have the JavaScript (laughs) experience really to take a project that was so developed already and figure out how to, work with it. I was, I was like literally kind of learning about like objects and functions at the time, which is kind of crazy, but, um, yeah. So like starting from a kind of empty slate, let me build things up and then go back and be like, Oh, this part needs to be rewritten or now I understand what I'm doing here. That's interesting. There's such a huge audience for this. Um, what did you do to kind of get the word out a little bit and promote it? And then what was the kind of community response around it? Um, I think, well, like I said, there's kind of a few different audiences, and with the processing audience, it was not too hard. I mean, one reason for choosing the name P5JS was like the brand, you know, brand in quotes, recognition, because um, we had some ideas of just like other names that might be fun to use, and, and I think the word processing has always been kind of confusing, because like you know, I have students that are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to processing it or, you know, like they <laughs> they don't quite understand it's like the name of the language because like, why would they? It sounds like, you know, a task um, or it's hard to Google because you search for like processing and then uh, a term and like just all sorts of process related things come up. Um, <laughs> and so and then P5 isn't much better because it's um, the, the name comes from originally when they brought got the processing domain, it had fives instead of the S's. Um, and so people would call processing P5 for short. So we chose that name to have sort of a connection, to give it a, sort of a legitimacy in the eyes of um, people that were, you know, processing users. And I think that really helped in terms of, you know, one of the big audiences is schools, like people teaching it, um, using it as a teaching tool. And so to have something that was like felt clearly associated with processing um, helped. But then there was also this audience of like, web users that I was excited about that were maybe they were people that were you know artists or designers or maybe they were also just people that were not that but were interested in doing more of that and maybe they like already had a fluency with the web but were actually looking for something that would give them an in to making graphics or making more creative um, you know artistic things and so um, I think getting it out to that audience really depended on collaborators and, and people in that community. So um, Nadia, you mentioned Boku already. So they were helping a lot, especially in the early de- development of the project. Um, they were just like so gracious in inviting me and Evelyn there and kind of giving feedback and helping us <laughs> learn what like linting and <laughs> things like that were. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> So I think sharing it with them and then them uh, you know, sharing it with their networks and it, it gave the project a life beyond just this like creative coding community, um, which was really sort of exciting for me. 
is it different to, I mean, in terms of like getting people to collaborate on um, an open source project or even just to use it, is it different in messaging to say a designer or an artist versus um, a software developer that's worked on a ton of other open source projects? Like, was there extra, extra work or messaging that you had to do there? Yeah, totally. Um, well, there's so many things I could say on this topic. I guess, well, I guess the first thing I'll say, and it's not specifically about artist and designer versus anyone else, but maybe it is a little bit, which is that feeling I had when I was like, oh, I'm going to have to like elbow my way into this space, aren't I? Or like, I have to prove myself and just feeling like that's not my that's not my nature to like push my way into a space or to shout and, you know, shout out and try to get attention just to be a part of something. So I, I think being given an in like I was, I felt like I want to give that sort of in to other people. I want to um, create a space where people feel sort of as, as welcome and supported as I did, you know, being someone that barely knew JavaScript uh, <laughs> doing my first project. Um, to be like a collaborator so that you don't have to elbow your way and you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to even necessarily know anything. You just have to be interested um, and willing to learn. And so that was like from the get go, one of the really, really important parts for me. And, you know, that question of like, what would processing look like today? Um, you know, it's like, oh, of course it would be made with HTML and JavaScript and CSS. Um, but I was like, also, I think there's like a much better awareness of like our need for diversity and like inclusive spaces. And so that needs to be like a core idea that is like part of this project. It's not like, oh, we made this this code library and now how do we like sprinkle some diversity in here or get some women in the room or something? Like I saw so many projects try to do that and just struggle. And I thought like, what if from the beginning, every decision we make is based on supporting that idea. And so that that's where it's coming from. And then in terms of the messaging, it's like having a really, really clear community uh, statement and code of conduct, um, having a lot of documentation for users of the software, but also trying to do that for the development side, trying to like set a tone in the GitHub issue threads where people feel okay to, you know, not know something or to ask a question or communicate and not feel like uh, it's a hostile environment. Um, and then also like making explicit decisions with the code where like at, there are times where we've actually like traded off performance to some extent. I don't want to say this and like make people too mad, but um, so that the code <laughs> could be a little bit more readable. So instead of doing like, you know, jujitsu magic behind the scenes in places where like, let's not do that. So that if some new contributor is coming to the project, they won't be like just totally lost. And so all of that goes into the messaging. And so I, my hope is that that makes it welcome for, I don't know, someone that might not have contributed to an open source project before, um, or maybe it's an artist or a designer that would never even consider themselves you know, a software developer, let alone a open source contributor. Um, or another thing that's really special about this project is that there's a lot of students that are contributors. Um, so, you know, being a teacher here at UCLA I, and previously is at NYU, just involving a lot of students in that process and like having uh, meetups where pe people can come and I'll like show them how to make a pull request and, and try to find issues for them to work on 
and it's like this kind of nice thing where a lot of them will kind of be involved for the couple years they're in school and then some of them will stay and some will go but it's like sort of a first experience in open source that they have um Mm. and these students like a lot of them are learning to code for the first time it's like i teach them coding and in like our intro you know interactivity class and then i um then I'm like at the end of the class, hey, if you want to be a part of this and like actually make this tool we've been using, you can come to the meeting on Friday. And a lot of them do. So it's like a really different huh. um, kind of audience than maybe typical or other open source projects have. That's so cool. I wonder if there are other like, I mean, because you also teach and like understand the academia side a little bit, like are there other examples of projects that are teaching open source in school and um, and having these like hands-on opportunities because that seems like such a great way to uplevel people into into open source. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that there are some courses I've seen that are more like intro to open source where they actually focus on that. Um, and I know there are a lot of like open source tools that are being used, like um, in the arts at least. There's like Arduino, which is uh, you know dealing with micro controllers and processing um, and scratch and all of those are like fairly friendly to contribute to but I don't know specifically if that's that's emphasized I mean one thing is like well I mean maybe the thing that is closest in spirit is something like Google Summer of Code and it kind of is a really similar energy happening in the summer right where it's like you've got a bunch of students and the task or the idea is not really to like pull a ton of like, you know, contributions out of them, although sometimes that happens. It's really to give them uh, an onboarding experience where they, they feel mentored and supported and like able to, to participate. Um, so I think a lot of things about that program are, are similar to kind of what I do at the P5JS meetups. Was there a point where you kind of recognized or, or you could see yourself moving from launching the project and initially kind of promoting and pushing the project to more of like maintaining the project? Oh, um, uh, well, I'm still, <laughs> I've, I've strategically stayed under 1.0 just so at any moment I can like change everything. Um, <laughs> and some take, people- take, take it from me. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I, I saw someone post on Twitter, like, um, I'm, I'm this this project. I it seems good, but I'm going to wait until it gets to 1.0 to use it. And I was like, all right, <laughs> see you there. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, let's see a moment. Um, I think it really like this project since it's so much uh, one of the, or so involved with schools is I kind of see it change from semester to semester. So the first time I actually used it in a class, it was probably um, totally irresponsible <laughs> of me, but it was like at RISD in, um, fall of 2013. So we'd been making, developing it for like three months and we we're just like, Hey, <laughs> here's a thing you're going to have to use. Um, and it was very hacky at the time. And so, and then I think kind of rolling it out, you know, then by spring 2014, I was teaching it at, at NYU ITP a little bit and, became something more. And maybe by the fall of 2015 felt like a point where it, I wasn't like running around trying to like stop up holes and put out fires as students were using it. Um, it felt like kind of stable enough that it was like a thing that 
and no longer like a test whether we should use use this tool or not. Um, so I don't know if that was the perception outside of it, but so I guess that was like a year, a year and a half after we started working on it. But I don't know. It's still it. it I I don't feel like there was a moment. I guess it feels like it's been this continuous thing where like I think that the, it's the user base is still growing um and each each semester i feel like there's more teachers getting in contact or um it's not just in schools but more people posting you know things they've made with it and the maintenance has been kind of constant um maybe it feels like there's less like huge holes now but i still see all the holes all the time so it's hard to say <laughs> That's that's sort of like your role though as as the originator maintainer of the project is to always see all the problems. But yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and then to make new ones, like when you were like, oh, let's make like a web editor, like like let's make a desktop editor. Let's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I I think like one of the, one of the big shifts that that I've seen in in project after project is that there's this point where you're just out there trying to get people to use it, trying to drive contributors to it, and then eventually you're just you're not looking for problems anymore you're just letting problems come to you like there's enough pull requests and things to deal with that you hear about problems when they happen and you don't necessarily have to go looking for them right yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Linode. Linode is our cloud server of choice and everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro and pick a location and in seconds, deploy your virtual server, draw worthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple easy control panel, 99.9% .9 uptime guaranteed, 24-7 customer support, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. So P5 has a lot of contributors. Um, how did you grow such a big contributor base? Other than forcing all of your students to contribute, like you were talking about earlier. <laughs> Fail them if they don't. <laughs> um, let's see. How did I grow it? Um, I think just trying to make it really easy to do, uh, to make a pull request um, and to find something to work on. Um, so I guess one one reason it's easy is a, there's a huge emphasis on documentation for like users of the tool. And so um, a lot of people, if they're looking for their first thing to do, I can say like, oh, well, find any page that doesn't have an example on it or a sufficient example or any piece of documentation that feels vague. And I'm sure if you, you've encountered one because you were just working with this tool. And you know, just make a change like that. And since um, all the all the documentation is in line in the source code, and that was really important to us so that if like 
I won't accept a pull request unless the documentation's there. And like, if you're editing the code, it's really easy to edit the documentation at the same time. But because it's in the code, it's cool because it feel really feels like you are actually doing something. You know, you're contributing to the source code. It doesn't feel like you're contributing to some like documentation repo or you know document or something. Um, and you have to kind of go through the steps to build everything and put the library together. Um, and so it's like a really good way to learn all the steps of the process of creating a pull request and building a library and submitting everything and to like see a results kind of immediately in a way that like, it's not going to, you know, I can, I have an unlimited number of those kinds of things that are um, pretty doable for anyone that's has some vague familiarity with, with code. So having that and then having uh, other issues, just trying to, I do sort of a bad job of this, but I try to like regularly tag things that are kind of smaller issues and also like log things that are small issues rather than just like fixing them myself when I notice them, um, just like logging and seeing if someone else wants to take it. And then some, I guess a lot, it's, it's a lot in the documentation. Like there's this, uh, cool video that Luisa Pereira made that was like inside P5. That's like this, um, hand-drawn animation where she's basically saying like, yeah, if you're a programmer and you come to the repo, all the source files, like it's not anything very complex. You can kind of go through and figure everything out. But if you're not like a experienced software developer, open source contributor, it, it totally feels like, confusing. Like what is grunt and what is like JS hint and what's, what's a git ignore. Um, and so she <laughs> made a, a, a really nice two part video that just like walks you through what each piece and is and what each tool does um, that you can kind of watch as a first step. Um, so having a lot of stuff like that. Um, and then one one moment where there were a lot of contributors that I was really excited about was we had this um, conference and I'd like to do another one. We're just looking for support, but um, it was at Carnegie Mellon University in, let's see, summer of 2015, I think. Yeah. And it was this thing where uh, Golan Levin, who runs a studio for Creative Inquiry there, got some funding from the NEA to host uh, a conference. And so he was talking to me like, oh, it's going to be this dev sprint, like pick your five best programmers. You can all come here for a week and get like so much done. And like somewhere <laughs> along the line, I was like, OK, but um, what if, you know, we invite to invite a few more people and it was uh it kind of kept growing and I was like, I don't think, you know, dev sprint is necessarily the right word. Um, it's the right word for some people to get, you know, some people here, but for other people, we're gonna have to use a different name. And we called it contributors conference. And I put the word out on like Twitter and social media, like anyone that's interested in coming, you can apply. You don't have to have a lot of experience uh, or any experience. Just explain like why you want to come and what you think you could contribute. And so, um, <laughs> and we it kept growing, and I kept we kept being like, oh, but we should bring this person too, and oh, this person seems really cool, and this person's got interesting experience from like Python, and um, and so ended, we ended up with like 30 people there when we were aiming for maybe like eight <laughs> total, and uh, and so it went from like you know being a really nice kind of cushy week to like everyone kind of sharing rooms and having these like you know pretty inexpensive meals just so we could um because we didn't have a lot of money um and then the so it was like a week before that and I was like oh yeah I've been saying this thing like anyone that wants to contribute can and should be able to and now they're all coming but like I don't know if that's true <laughs> like what if uh <laughs> how's this gonna work because a lot of people were um really new 
to the project or hadn't hadn't been involved in open source before. I was like, what's going to happen? Like, am I going to be running around to 30 people trying to like help them one by one? Like, this could be a nightmare. Um, and they just showed up and I was sort of terrified, but I was like, okay, well, here's, let's kind of break into teams and here's some of the stuff we want to do. And I did like an initial intro, you know, making a pull request and things like that. And it was just sort of amazing. Like it, people, like I saw like one person had learned how to do, you know, to make a pull request and she was like teaching it to her neighbor, like the next, you know, one hour later. Um, We had a lot of rules, like you can't, you can wear headphones, but you have to be willing to like stop and answer a question at any moment Mm -hmm. from anyone, which is not really like a, a sustainable way to work generally. But we said like for this week, let's try and work this way where it just know that you could be interrupted. So don't get like too crazy deep into some thing in your head. Um, and it was cool. I think like half the, you know, it was half women. Um, there's over half the people there. It was their first, uh, time contributing to open source, their first time, like even using GitHub, um, or making a pull request. And, um, yeah, it just kind of worked. People found a place that they could each kind of contribute something. And we had like really different roles. So we valued or we put equal emphasis on like people that were um, making like a community video versus people that were working on the WebGL section of the library um, and kind of gave those equal time and equal weight. Um, so, yeah, like events like that uh, where it's like people can come and really like get in immediately. And then a lot of them continue to keep contributing after that so cool i'm i'm marveling just because you're you're playing this up as like this is your first project and you kind of just you know tried this thing and it just sort of happened and you're sort of just like (laughs) following all these like like amazing um best practices or whatever you want to call them where stuff just kind of just kind of seems to work for you um like i mean does that come from like we hadn't we had another guest we talked to who was saying because he wasn't familiar with the project at all, um, but became a maintainer of it. He really emphasized things like documentation because it, it kind of came from his own experience. Like, where where did where did all these great ideas come from? Did he, was it just sort of like your <laughs> intuition from like from your own experience that like you're saying of wanting wanting to give someone else the same opportunities that you did? Um, it, it's just like it's. I guess maybe this is more of a comment. It's just like it's really awesome to see that you just sort of like did all these things that. Um, I think so many other projects would have benefited from. No, I think it's it's not just a comment, it's a question that has a an answer, which is um, <laughs> there's a few things. One of them is that I was just so lucky to be working with and surrounded by people that were super good advisors and mentors and um, role models. So like a <laughs> one of the reasons I was interested in getting into open source was um, it was a guy, you know, as, as one does. Um, but uh, so my partner uh, was involved in open frameworks. He was actually the community manager. And so I heard before I was even working on processing and while I or P5 and when I started was starting out, I heard a lot of things that he was thinking about. Um, and they they had that similar struggle of like they had built this project for a few years and then realized like, oh, this is a very homogenous group of people developing. How do we change that? And like it's a struggle. And he was saying we've got this mailing list and it's like this kind of 
uh, group of people. So anyone else feels like an outsider. And so he gave me so much advice of just like, you know, what's the difference between a mailing list anyone can join versus like a mailing list that you have to request an invite to? Like that's already adding a, a barrier. Like where are these barriers and how do you take them down? Um, or what is a mailing list versus just a broadcast channel where anyone could subscribe and doesn't have to like necessarily identify themselves as in or out at any moment? Um, so he, like he getting a ton of advice from he, him and then, uh, you know, Ben and Casey and, and Dan Schiffman with processing have done, you know, they've been building this audience in this community for since 2001. That is like a really supportive, um, nice community of people. So we already had that on our side. Um, and similarly, like Boku has a lot of experience, um, doing, you know, really, um, well-run community projects, open source projects. So they, they offered a ton of advice. And so it's just like all from every angle, right? Like everyone is kind of helping me, think through this, um, and, and supporting it too. Like I didn't get, uh, a lot of pushback. Um, you know, even when I was kind of doing things that felt uncomfortable for people, everyone was kind of willing to, to sit with that. And I think that was like something I think about a lot is, you know, now that I'm running this project, like to, to incorporate the view of someone that is different than you, it can't be me just trying to think like, what does that person need or what do they want to say? You have to actually like pass the mic to them or like pass the leader cap to them and like let them do it even when you're not sure about the decisions that they're making necessarily um, and like trust. And so I think there was, they did a lot of that, um, which was really helpful. Um, and then I think the other thing, and so part of that, like, kind of passing the mic to someone that has a different experience. I think when they passed it to me, I was, you know, maybe being a woman or maybe just being like a really kind of shy and socially anxious person. I'm, I, I was mentioning earlier, like I'm just generally sensitive to like, Oh, am I really invited here? Should I leave? Is like people <laughs> thinking I should go now. Should I? Um, <laughs> so I like just having that general anxiety in myself and like, how do I make this a, a place where you know, maybe I'm an extreme case, but, but other people also don't worry about that, that even when they make a mistake or they're not sure what to do, they still feel comfortable kind of sitting here. So I guess paying attention to that, but it's not at all. Like I, I get it right all the time. <laughs> a lot of times I realize like I've screwed up afterwards. And I think that's part of it is like, messing up and then not being like, Oh God, I'm never going to try that again. But instead just being like, okay, how do we do this better next time is, you know, maybe I offended someone or maybe I excluded someone, but is there any chance they'd be willing to talk with me and like show me a better way? Um, and if not them, can I, you know, is there someone else that I could talk with to understand this better and, and figure out what to do next time? Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I think on this show, we, we often talk about all the, the really the really great examples of getting new contributors and things like that. Like, what are some things that you've tried that didn't work out at all? Hmm. Um, I think at first I would feel really excited and I would, um, if someone knew if they s seemed interested or they sort of understood what to do um, or were, you know, seemed to be picking up really quickly and I would kind of like, and they, if they seemed like excited to get in deeper, I would just like open the door and be like, yeah, down that dark hallway, go for it. Um, and I think that tended to overwhelm or like, I wasn't, I wasn't very conscious of, um, 
just because someone's like, oh yeah, I'm excited about this, doesn't mean I have to kind of like <laughs> push them in as deep as <laughs> as uh, they might seem like they want to go at first. Um, and I think especially because like dealing with students, sometimes there's like a really different power dynamic um, that I, I have to be really conscious of that like some students, you know, really feel like they want to, if you're the teacher, like they want to do the thing the teacher wants them to do. At some, so at first I wasn't necessarily aware of that. I was also new to teaching. And so I would just think, oh, we're both excited about this project. We're going to like jump in. And then um, later realizing like I need to find a way to make it much easier to kind of step back or do it piece by piece and really make sure it's like their decision to to go into each space and, and also to kind of define to offer people like defined uh, ways to be involved so that it doesn't feel like this. Uh, and I think that's with any open source project, you kind of worry like, what am I getting into? And I'm, am I going to be able to get out? I think some people had that feeling. And so being like, look, this is, this is the task. And then if you want to like figure out another task after that, we can do that. So I, I messed that up a lot in the beginning, I think. And then, well, I don't know. There's always these, these parts where it's, it sounds so easy, like, oh, you know, we'll set this tone on GitHub issues or we'll we'll have this community statement or uh, we'll support these things. But, like, it's not that easy. And if it was that easy, like, everyone would just do it. Um, <laughs> but so there are times where, you know, someone will be extremely aggressive or something on, on a GitHub thread. And it doesn't happen really often with this project, but sometimes it does. Um, or not even aggressive, but they'll, they'll use some language that could be really off-putting. And I'll try to usually try to address it first, you know, just on the thread. Um, but there have been a, t- a few times where I had to kind of like email the person to talk with them offline. And, you know, sometimes people are, I have gotten upset about that. They felt like I was tone policing or, um, not being welcoming to them at the, you know, I'm privileging some other group that I'm trying to be welcoming to. And so those ones I don't really have, like, can't be like, oh, and then I figured out the solution and it was X. Um, It was just acknowledging that, like, you can't make everyone happy all the time. Or even if we say, you know, we are in support of uh, a diverse audience, like who and who gets to speak or who gets to share and how much and what. And, and like, not that I'm trying to set rules around those things, but that at some point you have to be like, what is the thing that we're putting on the homepage or what is the language that we're using here? And um, I think I've gotten that wrong in the past. Um, and just trying to, to ask, like, how do I, you know, how do we, how do, we do this better in the future? Um, I guess that was really vague. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not at all. I don't know. There, there's like a specific instance that I was thinking of re- really clearly, but I like haven't found a really good way to to talk about it yet. So I don't really want to um, okay. go really deep I, into it, but it's along it's, those it's, lines. It's fine. I think anybody listening who's had to maintain a project knows exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> They've had okay. an issue like that. I I think that like a a lot of, you know, things about conduct or even just, you know, what is the the mission or scope of the project or, you know, what, you know, what kind of community do we want? Do we want a nice and accepting community? All of those are about drawing lines and drawing boundaries. And there's always going to be people that test where those lines are. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's really difficult to deal with. And in both of the 
examples you're giving, I, I feel like I, I'm hearing this tension between wanting to empower people, but then also sometimes there just need to be these like norms that get set, or sometimes there needs to be more handholding. And it's not always obvious to know when you don't have context on that individual person, because, you know, you have a big project or you have like random people coming in, you don't know them well enough always to say, oh, I know what you're capable of or not, or I know how much I need to like talk about your language or, or not or whatever. And it sounds like a, a really big job. Yeah, actually, I thought of like one more example that was a little bit more specific, which was that um, there was a post on uh, on our web editor, which was issues that was not um, even public yet. It was like we we're only testing internally, basically. And it was from someone I didn't know. And it was the tone of it was kind of like, this doesn't work. And I'm really upset. And I just wrote back kind of like, you know, I'm sorry you're upset, but, you know, this isn't really public yet. So we're, things are still really in flux. Um, and that, like, also please acknowledge that, like, um, or just be careful with your tone that we're all working really hard with this. And so it's, it's you know, if you're just saying how mad you are, then it's kind of um, disheartening for us. And then I found out later that it was like a, a student that, uh, and a very young student who mm. didn't totally understand, you know, that had been shown this editor in a class that, um, you know, I didn't know about, but it wasn't like they had just stumbled upon it and they didn't like understand much about GitHub or about the project in general, but they had, they were kind of excited about this idea of GitHub issues and that they could kind of communicate with the creators. And so, you know, it's like a, a, a young person just explaining like, oh, I'm, I'm frustrated. And I was thinking of it like an adult, like, oh, how could they not, you know, think for a second about uh, how this might come off? And it's like, as soon as I understood the context, it, it was totally different, right? The message was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can identify with that or understand that completely. Um, and then also my response, I had been like responding as if it were an adult that could understand what I'm saying in this way. Whereas like a child just heard like, oh, you weren't supposed to be using this tool. Um, and also like you didn't say it right. And I felt really bad and I felt like I had really like screwed it up. But it also made me think like you can't um, – I just, the thing about, that I've been saying I had forgotten, which is like, you can't make assumptions about people that are participating in this project. And so if I could go into each message and not have some image of them in my mind, I think that that was the takeaway for me is to just imagine it could be anyone. Um, and imagine like the best case scenario where uh, whether they're saying something that feels aggressive or not, like imagine them as like a, a good person that is like, having some <laughs> difficulty with this tool and, and put myself in their shoes and then think about um, a better way to respond, even if I would still kind of communicate the same thing. You're making me like totally sad face right now. <laughs> oh, it's like so bad. It's such a touching story. <laughs> I just like, it's so, it's such a hard balance, right? Between like, like from a maintainer's perspective, they just, they need to also like protect themselves and set boundaries and like emotionally protect themselves, right? And like be able to say like, this is not, this doesn't make me feel good when you say something like that or whatever. Like they have a total right to do that. And then on the other end, there's just so many, like, especially now just like new people flooding projects, flooding GitHub who like just completely might not understand. And like, how do you make both sides happy? It's so hard. Yeah. It's funny that cause there's the thread on the GitHub maintainers uh, repo that was about mobile use. And I was thinking, Oh, the thing that I do the most with mobiles, I respond and then I want to edit it. 
because I'm like, oh, I didn't, I, that was too snappy or that I, I didn't like the way I said that. Um, and you, it's hard to edit on the mobile version. But then someone further down the thread was like, I just try not to do that on my phone. It just doesn't seem like a good situation. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Like if my issue is that I'm like responding and then not happy with the way I phrase things because I was going too fast, like I should just not be like responding to GitHub issues like on my phone as I'm riding the subway. I should just, hmm. you know, compartmentalize that a little more. And I think that like part, a lot of the responses that I'm less happy with come out of just trying to do too much or to respond too quickly or, you know, not being in a calm enough place that I can just be totally open and thinking clearly instead of like, oh, that hurt my feelings. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org changelog. It's free to use and has professional support for enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org changelog. straddles both software and design worlds um, and you officially call yourself both an artist and a programmer how do you navigate those different cultures um, where have there been really good crossover learnings and, and where has it been hard hmm um well i guess the the artwork that i do um is that they're really not separate things. Um, so I'm a lot of times like making software um, or making systems um, as as the artwork or as part of an artwork. Um, a lot of what I do is like making software that facilitates performances that are kind of dealing with um, uh, being a person <laughs> or um general like social interaction I guess is kind of the focus of my artwork and so when I try to try to draw a through line from um, programming or from working on you know p5.js specifically uh, that's where it is for me that um, it's you know while some this is not like p5.js is not actually the tool that I use most often to make my artwork in the way that um, some other people you know make a tool and then are making drawings, for example, um, using that tool. Like since I'm doing things that are more like software systems or apps, um, it's the, the, I use JavaScript a lot. Um, I don't use P5.js specifically that much. Um, but the, so the through line between that project and my art practice is really the, the social aspect of it. And I think that's why I've put such a big focus on it. Cause it's, it's the thing that's really my, um, 
my main interest. Um, but then I think having a background in software and in technology gives me like, uh, I think a different way of thinking with my artwork. Um, and so I'm understanding things like on different levels, you know, from like a systems perspective or from the perspective of like how the technology might actually work or what I might actually build. Um, but then also coming back out and thinking like, oh, but I don't actually have to build like a production ready app. I just need to make some, like, how do I create the art experience? Um, rather than, you know, it, like take off the software developer hat and put on the artist hat and say like, what is the thing that I can make that's kind of in the middle that um, creates the experience that I want to. Um, so I'm like, rather than doing flipping between the two, I find myself like really in the space that's that's sort of in the middle. And so a lot of the artwork that I do is is kind of critical of or addressing new technology. And I feel like I'm able to do that in a, in a more nuanced way because I really understand the the technology or the way it's built or, um, you know, a lot of my friends are involved in making some of these things. Um, and then I think on the software side, the art side of things really helps me think about, um, about experience, you know, and about, um, the kind of social aspects of things and about like it, you know, putting less, less emphasis on what does it do and how fast or something, but in more on what is the experience of that, like, um, from, you know, an original conception to after the fact you've experienced it or you've used the tool. How do you feel? That's deep. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to but, sit here and meditate yeah, on that. Yeah, I'm processing. <laughs> Why do you think there aren't more people with your skill sets and backgrounds in open source? Like, I'm thinking people just sort of with that design aesthetic or understanding or, or that really thinking about the user experience kind of things. Um, why aren't more of those people involved in open source? Oh, um, I think there's not enough emphasis on them yet that there's still a lot of feeling of like, Oh, it's gotta be, uh, you, like the, the technical or the power of it is the thing that really holds up a project and all the, like the graphic design or the documentation or the community or whatever, um, that, that it's secondary. And, um, I think if we, you know, flip that a little bit and think like, actually documentation is really, really important. And also the community is really important. Like, yes, there are always going to be the users that go to the tool that, um, like just does the thing that they want the fastest or the best. But there are also a lot of users that um, will go to the community that they feel they can relate to. Like sometimes when I'm talking to my students and they say, there's so many JavaScript libraries to do like, you know, touch interaction. How do I decide which one to do, to use? You know, I tell them some things about, you know, various like cons technical considerations, but I also say like, just look at the website and like get a feel for it and think, does this feel like a thing I want to engage with? Does it feel really flashy or does it feel really technical or does it feel um, like friendly or accessible to you in a way that you think you could imagine yourself going here and looking up documentation and kind of teaching yourself how to use it? And so I think that those aspects are like super important but undervalued. Um, and uh, there, it's been really freeing with this project to say we're not trying to make the fastest JavaScript graphics library 
or the most efficient. Um, but we're trying to make the one that really gives people an in to the to a broad range of um, you know techniques or functionality for making things on the web and uh, getting over that like oh I you know I still always wish that it were faster and it did more and it worked better but um, to to not hold that as like the only goal has been really useful. That's really really insightful, <laughs> actually. Like I, I don't think that we spend enough time talking about choosing which culture you respond to. There, there's a lot of focus in the techno community on, you know, does this thing have the right features or is this thing some version of correct? Um, mm-hmm. But I think like we forget that like these communities are where we're going to have to live for a while. <laughs> um, and finding cultures that you respond to can be even more important. I mean, I've seen a couple projects grow and literally convince people to take on projects and, and to do stuff in those libraries because they responded so well to the culture. Mm-hmm. People that had no interest in doing robots, I think, got into Johnny Five because of the culture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think that it's going to have to change because uh, it's just becoming so much easier to learn how to code. It's becoming, not that it's easy, but <laughs> that there's so many more resources um, and that it's becoming just like so much more present that I think relying on a user base that you, or assuming your user base is like all very, very technically minded, technically sophisticated people, it just doesn't. Um, makes sense in terms of like the reality of people out there on the web that are making things with code. So you're employed to, I mean, you're employed to teach, not not to just work on this open source library, but it sounds like a, a part of your, your role there is sort of working on this library as well. When you think about how to continue to sustain this library with, with such a growing user base and contributor base, like how do you think about how to do that? <laughs> Um, hmm. Well, I don't have any great ideas. <laughs> We've tried some things. Um, we, we had an idea, uh, maybe this is a, I don't know if this is a failure or not. Um, we just recently, so there's this processing foundation, um, that Ben, Casey, Dan, and I direct that is sort of an umbrella for processing in P5.js. And I think one problem with it being called the Processing Foundation is it sounds like the Mozilla Foundation or something. And people are like, oh, can you fund our projects? And we're like, no, 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 we made this so that you could give us money. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it, so it's not like a big organization or anything. It's really just a, a structure for us to kind of, you know, identify what we're doing and, and try to raise some money to make it more sustainable. Um, and so recently we rolled out this like membership idea um, where you can make an a annual donation and it's you don't get any extra anything. <laughs> you get your name on on a website, but it's uh, a way of we're trying to frame it, um, this idea of like, I guess it's we're trying to put out this idea that of ongoing support of an open source project that you use. Um, and we had a really great response from we have like a few like an indi- you can do this as an individual uh, as a studio because a lot of like design studios use this or as an educational institution. And I hope I'm not trying to sound pitchy here. Like I'm not trying to convince anyone to become a member. I'm just trying to explain what we did. So um, uh, the idea behind it was really came from thinking like, oh, there's so many schools that teach with these tools and they like pay so much money for proprietary licenses like Adobe. Maybe they would give us some some small donation, you know, considering they, they teach with with this free software we make. Um, 
and we didn't get a lot of response. And so we felt kind of like that didn't work because <laughs> um, we had a lot of hope that maybe this would be, you know, we could put this new idea out here that like, yes, you're using open source, like less so to individuals, but especially to like larger institutions that would pay thousands of dollars to a company, just, you know, a few hundred dollars to help um, support these tools that you teach with. Um, so I don't know. That was an idea um, that didn't quite work. So now we are trying to think of other ideas. Um, I think for me personally, it's been, and and I guess one difficult thing is like, and I, everyone wants to, it's much easier to get funding and also like contributors around something that's new, um, much harder to do it for like maintaining something. So if I were like, oh, I'm going to make this new library, um, I could probably get some grants to do that. Um, but since it already exists, the the sustaining grants are much fewer and harder to get. And I think you've talked about that on your show. Um, and trying to think of new, sort of new things, but but actually kind of reframing what we're already doing as a way to try and get support. And But f- really for me, um, I think the place that I've gotten to in terms of sustainability is like just like lowering my own desires or expectations for it and that's been like really hard to do because I'm, I'm the sort of person that like I really want every project I do to be like 500% like as good as I can possibly make it like if I'm uh, making our project or a piece of software I want it to be like I feel 100% happy with the code and with every detail of it and I realize like this is this project is not that like not that I'm not trying but just like it's such a, a a large thing and it's you know the web is always changing that like it's not actually possible for it to be everything is working and everything is up to the standard that I would like it to be at every moment um and that's okay that I like it I should uh just go to sleep and do some more the next day and to like set limits like not have all the github emails come straight to my inbox but go to a folder and look at them at times when I'm working on this and um, just to be like more realistic about what is what is possible um, and making some hard decisions like maybe we won't add this this set of features just even though it would be really cool um, just because there's not the energy to sustain that or maybe it needs to be like an add-on library so we're not um, it doesn't feel a part of the core library that needs to be maintained if it if it goes out of date. Have you thought about bringing on other maintainers? Yeah. Um, the thing that, you know, I've, I've made some attempts in the past to try and like more formally bring people on in that role. And I think it's difficult um, because uh, I don't know, actually, maybe it's something I need to explore more. Maybe it's more the sort of thing that I feel like I, it didn't work the first couple times and then I gave up. So I've, I've tended towards things where it's more uh, fluid that people can be as involved as they want and I try to support that and engage them as much as they seem interested and then when they leave the project to you know let that be natural and and not kind of frame it like oh you're a maintainer and now you're not um but maybe that is something that is like more uh needs more thought and it's it is something I'm thinking about like we're just about to launch uh, a Spanish version of all the documentation and website and 
I realized with that, like I, it's, it sends the wrong message to have like really incomplete and messed up documentation in one language in Spanish and then really complete in English or something. So I said, if we're going to launch this, um, we need something that will commit for like one, for any language to commit for one year to being the maintainer of that. Um, and then at the end of that year, you can keep going or you can find someone else to take your place or we will um, kind of change the status of the, the documentation. So it will still be there, but it won't be like linked um, like as a language button from the homepage. Um, so people can still access it, but it doesn't give the idea that like we're not we're just neglecting it. And then at, at any point when someone is ready to sign on for that role, then we'll put the link back up and have them maintain it. So trying to find like think of that. Like for me, that model makes sense in terms of translation, and maybe there's things from that could that could come in um, in terms of maintaining the code base in general. I guess similarly, I'm wondering, um, and we didn't touch on this earlier, but getting something I hear from other maintainers is like getting new contributors in the door. There might be these like established practices for doing that, but then getting them to like that next step can be harder, or getting them to come back and contribute regularly can be harder. Um, has that been? A challenge in your experience to get people beyond those first couple of commits? Um, and especially, I guess, with the students kind of like that cycle yeah, through. Yeah, I think I have a little bit less of that problem um, because I think a lot of people, because this is really like their first time doing it, that um, if they go through all the trouble to uh, learn how to do that process, they feel kind of like that is a significant kind of thing for them. And so they feel yeah. sort of like, oh, I want to do that again. And even if it's, you know, other small pull requests or something like that. And and so what happens with the, the pattern more typically is like, you know, over this semester, they're very active and then like their thesis uh, takes over, which as it should, or, um, you know, it, it fluctuates more with their, or they get a, a job and they have less time for it, or maybe they have more time. Um, so, I think going from like first commit to the, the big hurdles are like the first commit um, and then maybe like sustained over a longer period of time beyond like a specific well, summer of code period or semester or something. But on the other hand, like I, mm, I don't, I don't feel it's, I would love for people to kind of stay on to the project beyond that. And a lot of them do, but I also want to make it feel really clear like that that's not an expectation um and then for for non-students um yeah it's a lot more fluid that what i find more often is that like people come in and be really active and and be um really taking on the role of maintainer um for a while for a few months for a year or something and then kind of step away and so maybe what i really need to do is like recognize that that's type of contribution more clearly so when do you decide, or I should say, I guess, how do you decide um, when somebody is ready to be given commit access? Like what, what have they done in the project when you want to kind of give them that extra little bump up? Oh, um, I try to do it like um, really immediately. Um, and sometimes if, if I don't do that, it's just like um, it being like one more <laughs> thing that, I forget to do like that among the mix of things. I'm like, Oh crap. And like, who else do I need to add in here? Um, but yeah, the, the general policy is that like, if you've, um, made a commit 
um, then you should have like push access uh, to the to the project. Um, and people still submit pull requests, and generally I will review and merge, or like assign, you know, say to someone else like, if you think this is good, merge it. Um, but then I guess it, the place where it differs is if there's like a specific area. So there's uh, like one person that's kind of maintaining the WebGL stuff, and so uh, that person, you know, has full kind of push access, or, or I mean, they have access, but they they kind of um, make the decision and same thing for typography. Like they can just go ahead and, and make the changes, um, without any expectation that I need to review things. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the policy, whether I remember to <laughs> keep adding <laughs> people as they, um, make commits is a, is a different question. So this is, this has just been great. Um, are there any final things that you want to say or anything that we kind of didn't cover? Um, that you find, you know, important or interesting or things that you've learned? Um, the thing that really stands out to me is when people have um, been extremely generous in some moment that made me change the way that I thought about this project, about the open source community, about the way I wanted to interact with other people. Um, like one example was uh, really early on, Evelyn and I, um, went to Boku and they had offered to kind of review our code um, and give us some suggestions. And one uh, engineer there, Ben Allman, uh, sat down with us and looked it all over, looked at what we had, and then he gave us some recommendations. And the first thing he said was like, so uh, I would recommend like not putting your source code all in one file. <laughs> so we had like <laughs> one, one long file with all our source code. Um, <laughs> he's like, you might want to set some standards. Like, are you using two equal sign, three equal sign? Are you having spaces or tabs? Like things like that. Like kind of the most to me now seem like the most <laughs> basic, obvious things. But um, just being new to all this, we had no idea. Um, and in the moment when he was making some suggestions like this. I did not get the feeling at all. Like I didn't feel embarrassed and I didn't, I didn't feel embarrassed. Like I do now thinking about it. <laughs> um, and I think to be able to do that is really special, right? Like, you know, here are people that are such experts at this thing that we were really new to. Um, and they met us and didn't treat us like uh, people that didn't know what we were doing. They, they treat us as equals and just, gave us their honest feedback and didn't make us feel sort of embarrassed about <laughs> where we were at with the code. And that still really sticks in my mind that um, what might feel really obvious to you after working on something for a while or learning something for a while is not at all obvious to someone that's just starting out. And why would it be? <laughs> um, and so can you give someone that feeling that even if they know less than you or they're less experienced, that doesn't mean they're you know, less of a, <laughs> less good developer, less of a person or something, uh, less of a contributor. Um, and I think that, that really touched me in other moments like that, where, um, you know, people really took the time to engage, give feedback, give advice. Um, or, I, and I also think of like, you know, Ben and Casey having made processing and I know they, they follow on the P5JS repo and then 
<laughs> every once in a while we'll be like debating something and then like Ben Fry will comment with a link back to like this discussion that they had like 10 years ago about this thing and, like how they already figured it out um and then being like I'm really cautious to post this here because maybe you know you'll come up with a better answer but I you know I just felt there was so much discussion I wanted to offer this context um but the fact that that uh kind of openness that like even if you've done it before maybe you don't have all the answers or maybe you do but you're still willing to let let someone new try and make their own conclusions and mistakes um i think that takes uh a lot of thought and um a lot of energy and i am so appreciative of those kind of moments and gestures so that's I don't know if, <laughs> how I sum that up, but maybe that that's the the thing that I think is often um, underlooked, but so powerful and so um, so useful. That's a great note to end it on, actually. So I want to thank you for coming on. This has been amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. This was awesome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Request for Commits. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Share it with a friend. Read us on Apple Podcast. Tell everyone you know. And thank you to our sponsors, Linode and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, thanks to Rollbar for our air monitoring. and to Rollbar.com to learn more. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Request for Commits is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's edited by Jonathan Youngblood, mastered by me, Adam Stachowiak, and the music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.